Our second lesson today comes from the book of Hebrews. We're jumping in at verse 29. The first 28 verses are kind of like the second chunk of uh, the, the, the last 10 or 12 verses that we're going to read, where the author of Hebrews is listing off a bunch of examples of what it looks like to live by faith. He starts with, uh, starts with Abel, which is pretty early on. That's Adam's son. Um, and then kind of walks through the history of Israel. And we're picking up in verse 29. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. Because she had received the spies in peace. What more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received their dead by resurrection, Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, didn't receive what was promised since God had provided something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And there's so much in this text. I'm, I was very overwhelmed. Um, by, by just the number of ways you could go. Faith, I think, understanding what faith is and what faith isn't, is, I think, maybe the theme of my life up until now, both personally but also professionally as a pastor. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Uh, but faith is the one, I think, that gets most of our attention. Faith is the one we most closely connect to belief, to salvation. Faith is the one we lose. I can't remember many people at all ever sitting across from me and and, and saying something like, you know, I've lost my love for, for people. Um, and maybe, maybe we should take stock of that a little more. I've, I don't, 
you know, I don't know how to love. Um, but, you know, nearly, nearly every conversation I have has some, some, some spin on the conversation. I've, I've, you know, I, I lost my faith, or I, I don't know where my faith is, or uh, I'm struggling with my faith, with what I believe. And in that way, faith has kind of become the theme of my life, both personally and professionally. And Hebrews 11 is this great chapter on faith. It starts with a definition and then it gives all sorts of examples. And so this morning we'll explore it. What is it? Is it something you have? Does it grow? What does it do? Does it move mountains? Does it conquer? Does it simply persevere? I want to say three things that faith is not before I kind of dig into this chapter and say hopefully some constructive things about what faith is. The first thing that faith is not is that it is not a commodity. And this is too bad because I spent about 10 years in religious education and if it was a commodity, I'd have a lot of it. Um, There are some verses, especially when Jesus talks about faith, that give you the sort of impression that it's, it's this thing that you can be, that you can have, you can attain. He says things like, He says, like, I have not encountered this much faith anywhere in Israel. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move this mountain. Faith often seems to be quantified in Scripture. I, I, um, you know, sometimes I I imagine it like in NHL 2001, which is the PlayStation game that I played a lot um, for a few years in my life, and you could create a player. It was like one of the first games where you could create a player, and you could slide the little bars along. And sometimes faith um, felt to me like, you know, this, this little bar of faith. Like it was one of the things in building a Christian that you could slide up and down, and maybe you could improve your score. If you worked hard enough at it, you could improve your faith score and become a 98, and then, you know, your wrist shot would never miss. Faith as a commodity has been a problem for the church throughout history. I mean, this is, this is what's happening pre-Reformation, is that um, the church has begun essentially selling faith. The question, what do I new, need to do to make sure I'm going to heaven? You know, well, they put a price tag on it. And, and, and you, could, you could purchase your assurance of salvation. This is one of the cruxes of why there's a Reformation. This is one of the things that needs to be reformed. Faith understood as this commodity that could be bought and sold. For me, in, 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 um, in seminary, uh, you know, if faith is a commodity, like sort of like a fundraising thermometer that we try to, to raise the level of, we view faith as sort of this linear thing that we can progress up, that we can add faith to this, this thermometer and maybe reach this some sort of pinnacle. And that was the functional theology that I had um, for a lot of my life. And, and, and so I, I, I studied for religion for four years at Hope College and then I went on to seminary and I did a, a five-year program and it was in my, the fourth year of my five years that that bar sunk. And, and it felt like, well... Shoot, <laughs> um, what do I do if faith is a commodity and then you lose all of it, then you're done, right? And you, you give up and you don't have faith, which means you're not a Christian anymore, which means you don't believe certain things. And, um, and it, was, it was a moment of panic and anxiety in my life because I could no longer put faith in my faith. 
And, um, and the good news is that faith is not a commodity. The second thing it isn't is that it's not winning an argument. When someone loses their faith, often the first thing someone will do is try to convince them of an argument. And this is exactly what I did when I lost my faith. I, I started watching YouTube videos of Ravi Zacharias debating with you know, Christopher Hitchens or whoever, um, Richard Dawkins and Rowan Williams, and I just started, went down this incredible spiral of listening to these debates and these arguments and, and started trying to argue my way back into, back into having faith. Faith is not winning an argument. The functional theology that I had was that faith is essentially agreeing with an argument. And apologetics is an art that has sort of developed over the last couple hundred years in a very specific way with the goal of winning the cultural argument, convincing people that the Christian faith is the most right faith. But arguing rarely ever produces faith. You know, in this journey I came across, you look at like something like Pascal's Wager, which is the philosophical idea that, you know, if there's a God, uh, yeah, if you live as if there's a God and there's a God, great, you win. Uh, if you live as if there's a God and there's not a God, oh well. If there's not a God and you live as if there's not a God, oh well. If, there's, if you live as if there's not a God and there is a God, you're in trouble. And so you might as well choose the one box in that chart that makes you the winner, right? Um, I've, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's really ever persuaded anyone too strongly. There's Aquinas' five ways, which is, um, you know, another, another argument for the existence of God. And all of these things might be helpful in some ways. But if we convince people of an argument, we think we will convert them. I thought if I could convince myself of an argument, I would discover that I have faith again. But you cannot put your faith in an argument. You can, but that is not Christian faith. Christian faith is trust in a person, not in an argument. The third thing that faith isn't, it's not a commodity, it's not winning an argument, is that it's not one size fits all. And in 2019, faith looks and feels and lives differently than it did in the past. And I think this is an important point. One theologian describes our times this way. He writes, fragmentation has become the most obvious characteristic of the landscape today. We, have a, we live in a fragmented world. Things used to be simpler. Um, and, and, and this is true of, of all sorts of different areas in the world. It's particularly true of the church where at one point there was one Roman Catholic church and they held the authority and the power and you didn't really question what they, what they said. They, we, we, they trusted the tradition that was handed to you. And then there's the Reformation and there's a little bit of fragmentation, but there's still generally consensus that there are a couple of sides come to the world today and not only are there any number of denominations and churches, but within those, you know, church to church, it's a different understanding of what faith is. And then person to person, we live in a world that is so fragmented. The world used to be simpler. The, 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 the time that we're living in is called 
post-modernity. And the, even the definition of post-modernity, there aren't really any positive definitions. It's mainly negative definitions defining itself as, well, we know we got it wrong in the past, but we're not exactly sure what it looks like to live in the present. If you find yourself fragmented, I'm sure, unsure of what to believe or how to believe, if you find yourself occasionally in the evening anxious about what faith is supposed to feel like, you're not alone. I called my grandma this week. I can't read the passage about the cloud of witnesses without thinking about her. So I called her on Tuesday to tell her what passage I was preaching on and she caught me up on the bed bugs that have been in her apartment and everything else that was going on. And I called back on Friday and she said she had read the text a couple of times. We talked about Gideon and we laughed at how silly Gideon was, how relatable Gideon's story is. He triple checks God on everything. I'm preaching on faith, I told her. I think a lot of people in my church have questions about faith. What, what should faith feel like? What does it look like? What does it do for you, she filled in. And she said, you know how no matter how old you get, and she's 96, no matter how old you get, you wonder some things. You know what you believe, but then something always gets in the way of it. She was born in 1923 in rural Wisconsin, and she spent her entire life living on Carter Road in between Marquesan and Randolph, and she went to the same church for 90 years until she wasn't able to make it. And as we were talking, it it struck me how differently we have experienced faith. I've spent time living in several countries and, you know, different cities in the United States, different states. Um, We have a very different experience of faith. And then I was thinking about this passage from Hebrews and how the author of Hebrews gives us examples of what faith looks like in different um, seasons in the life of Israel. It's almost like the author's trying to check a box when he starts, starts so early with Abel and then it works the way through, through the patriarchs, Abraham, then Moses wandering in the wilderness. Then we get to our section, and I'm not going to go over everyone, but he talks a few of the people, you know, Rahab and Jericho during this season of wandering when Israel's trying to figure out what a home is and Rahab is kind of an outlier in this list for a few reasons. She's not an Israelite. She lives in the city of Jericho, and she's the only woman that's mentioned on this list. She's also mentioned in the lineage of, of Jesus, um, and she's a prostitute, not the person you expect in the list of the cloud of witnesses that surround us in faith. She's not necessarily who you'd expect. Gideon is, you know, the story that made us laugh is that God tells Gideon, who's one of the judges of Israel, so now we're in the, the period of the judges, God tells Gideon, um, you know, go lead Israel into battle. And Gideon says, you know, I might have just dreamed that, or like, I I, that could have been my voice, so let me, let me put out a fleece, uh, you know, let me, put out, let me put out some fleece, and if it's soaking wet in the morning and dry all around, you know, then I'll know that it was really God. And he goes to sleep and he wakes up and it's just like that. He wrings out two bowlfuls of water with the fleece. He says, wow, that was amazing. But, you know, come to think of it, I'll bet the fleece naturally absorbs the dew that's around it. So that, let, you know, let, it, if I leave the fleece out and it's wet everywhere else and it's dry, 
then I'll know. And he goes to sleep, and of course, it's, it's that way when he wakes up in the morning. And, and so he leads Israel's 32,000 into battle, except by the time that he gets to the front of the battle, God has whittled the army down to 300. I relate to Gideon. Are you sure? Are you sure that's what you're saying? There's Barak. Um, Barak. I, it's, I, I forgot that Barak's mentioned here. Barak's interesting. Barak's also from the time of the judges, but Deborah was the judge, right? The only female judge of, uh, in this period of, of leaders for Israel. And Barak is the commander of the army. And Barak goes um, to Deborah, and Deborah gives him the command, lead the army into battle. And Barak's response um, is, well, I'm only going if you go. Which is like, you know, it's not like full of faith. You, you, when you think of like well, how Barak would respond if he was full of faith, go, all right, you say it, I do it. You know, it's like, no, he hedges his bets. He's not sure. And he takes some convincing. He says, I'm still only going if you, Deborah, come with me. Um, and I've even heard sermons about how Barak is like, um, how it's embarrassing for Barak. And he should have had more courage. And he should have led. And why does he need a woman to lead? And... Um, but he's listed as the people who have faith. And maybe one response is, hey, why didn't get Deborah get the shout out here? She's the one who, who, who ended up leading them you know, into battle. Um, but it's also interesting that the author of Hebrews says that it was faith for Barak to say, wait, the spirit of the Lord is on you, Deborah. I'm only going if you go. Um, anyways, that's just interesting. I, my, my point is that... Um, Faith in every season in the life of Israel looks different. Faith in each one of these stories looks really different. Sometimes, you know, for, for someone like David, it's a, it's a long life of faith. For Rahab, it's in this moment of panic when she's afraid her city's going to fall, that she, um, that she has faith. Faith looks different in each of the seasons of the life of Israel, and it looks different. Um, and it looks different in 2019. Rowan Williams, in his little book, Being Disciples, writes, Faith appears not as a system, a comprehensive answer to all our problems. It appears, quite simply, in the form of dependable relationship. It appears in the form of dependable relationship. He, he says this dependable relationship is characterized by the interaction that Peter and Jesus have in John 6 when Jesus has said some things that are off-putting and a lot of his followers are leaving and Jesus turns to the disciples and says, are you guys going to take off as well? And Peter looks at him and he says, to whom can we turn? You have the words of eternal life. To whom else can we go? Williams writes, the loss of understanding the loss of a clear sense of what we know and how we know is part of the difficult business of learning to question at every level who we are. But we are somehow set free to face all that and live with it by the conviction that we are not let go of. When faith stops being a commodity that we have to accumulate to be sure that we're right, a commodity we accumulate to stave off damnation, it can become the gift that can't be bought or earned or argued. It can become the dependable relationship 
the trust in a God, a person, Jesus Christ, who no matter how weak our grip becomes, his never does. In this moment for me when I sort of felt like I could no longer have faith in my faith, I came across a passage from a book, The Promise of Baptism, by my New Testament professor, Jim Brownson. And it, I've, I've read the whole thing in here before. I'm not going to read the whole thing again. It's, but it, it, it really changed my life because it opened my eyes to the reality that I was trusting in my faith and not in Jesus. He writes, you can't have faith in faith. You can only have faith in something or someone outside of yourself. Only when our gaze turns from ourselves and our own capacities, even our capacities for faith, only then, instead to the living God, will we find any peace. After my grandma and I had talked for a little while, she said to me, you know, and she's 96, and, and, and her, her memory's just, just starting to go, which is a blessing. Um, she said to me, I would like so much to be in your church. which is probably about the most moving thing she could tell me. And my first reaction was, maybe. (laughs) Maybe, maybe you'd like to be here. Maybe it's better that you can't come. (laughs) That was my first reaction, you know. I don't think she's ever had real wine at communion, you know. And uh, that was my first reaction. But for all the things that are different, in her faith and mine. Once the strangeness of having wine and not grape juice, or the, you know, the strangeness of a, of a melody put to a song that she thought she knew, once that had worn off, there would be a familiarity, a through line. This table, this meal would be as familiar to her as her recliner. The Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed the melody she might not catch, but the words of the hymns she would recognize. For all the things that have changed, there are some things that haven't. And if the author of Hebrews could write to the newborn church about being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, how much more can we lean on the saints? On Barak and Gideon and Rahab? On Paul and Mary Magdalene? on Augustine and St. Teresa, on Harriet Tubman and Martin Luther King Jr., on John Vanier and Rachel Held Evans, on whoever it was that read you the stories, people like my grandma. They stand all around us, each of them with a faith for their time, encouraging us to find a faith for ours. You are not alone. You are surrounded. You stand in the prodigious company and you belong there. Fix your eyes on Jesus who started it and who promises to finish it. Let's pray. God, I thank you that no matter how weak our grip becomes, you never let us go. You never let us go.
pray that as we go into this week, we would know that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. We give you glory and praise in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.